on this episode of The Kinked Wire. I don't personally love going too down the roots of one subspecialty because mm. then you lose the forest from the trees. Yeah. And I think ultimately the more holistic you can be, the better off the patient will be. So if you just come in for one problem, you should be able to assess the other problems. Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SIR Publications. You can learn more on our website, surweb.org slash kinkedwire. On this episode, host Warren Krakow speaks with interventional radiologist Joji Vatikacheri about his clinical interests, the evolution of the specialty and clinical opportunities for trainees, and more. Great. Well, we have Joji Vatikancheri here and really, really glad to have you. And uh, we could spend hours talking to you. We don't have hours, unfortunately. Um, You've just done so much for the society. Very, very active in in medical education with respect to IR. Very active in uh, interventional oncology, PAD. Uh, As I say, we could talk forever about any of these topics. We're going to try to do a little sprinkling here if we can. So tell me a little bit about your training and, and how you ended up. You're at Kaiser, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> First of all, thanks for those kind words. So probably sure, a little sure. bit overblown. As far as my training, I went to undergrad med school in the University of Miami um, and then okay. subsequently went to uh, kind of found out about IR late. I was definitely surgically bound, thinking cardiothoracic surgery probably, hmm. and did enjoy that or gen surge or something of that nature. And then during that third year on my hepatobiliary surgical oncology rotation, saw how you know, sick these patients got after open surgery, even, you know, mm. and so it took long recoveries. So Swiss Chuck and company at the University of Miami, the VIR group, reconstruct a biliary system in a, one of the oldest guys, and probably most frail person on my service as a student. And it was like, he left the next day with a Band-Aid and <laughs> it was like nothing happened. And that's when my eyes are open to this new field of minimum invasive medicine. And so I investigated that more and kind of did a kind of a, a pivot to vascular interventional radiology as opposed to kind of general open surgery or laparoscopic surgeries. And then I went to um, University of Chicago, uh, did my internship there, actually in NIM there. And uh, then I went on to stay as a diagnostic radiology resident there for the rest of that time. And then I was kind of trying to figure out, like I really realized that the future is in the office and in the clinic and in admitting your own patients and comprehensive managing patients. And there was a guy who's doing a lot of CLI and a lot of kind of vascular disorders uh, and being a primary operator as a vascular specialist, admitting patients to his own service, seeing about 30 patients a week in clinic, doing his own wound care. And that was Thomas McNamara. And I, mm-hmm. I was able to go to UCLA to train with him and Dong and, and Gomes over there. I think that was kind of my main impetus to come to California. And at that time, I was kind of looking at the Northeast for some job opportunities and academic uh, sites and whatnot mm-hmm. right after training. There wasn't a lot available at the time, and certainly not many of the ones that I did ask for wouldn't give me any clinic time, you know, so okay. and I thought that was, for me was a deal breaker. If I didn't have clinic, I knew I wasn't going to ultimately have sustainable success. So I just wanted time. I knew that infrastructure wasn't there at the time throughout the country, but at least give me some dedicated time half day mm-hmm. every week or every other week or something that I'm not operating or doing what have you or reading films or doing other things that I can see patients in some fashion. So, you know, one of my friends was a resident of Kaiser and kind of introduced me to the site and they did offer me a half a day of at least time uh, mm-hmm. every other week. And so I came here and, you know, initially we had three people. And to be honest with you, I was doing mostly diagnostic. My intervention was mostly hospital based. Um, it just took time giving talks, growing it, and growing better clinically. At one point, I was like, this is taking too long. And then all of a sudden, it just started to finally work. Mm. And so about the three-year mark is when things started to shift. Uh, it got busier in clinic. 
um, started to do more and more on IO and hepatocellular carcinoma and, and started to build that clinical practice, getting some infrastructure, now getting clinic space, getting a physician assistant, office manager, et cetera. So it started to grow in an organic fashion. Hired another interventionist also started to allow, enabling me to do a half day a week of clinic. And so now we're 10, 15 years later, now we have nine peripheral interventionists, three neurointerventionists, three extenders. And, you know, I do about a day. Like today is my, one of my main clinic days. So I just finished clinic and headed over here. Um, that's, and yeah, it's been great, you know. It, it, that's really terrific. And, and, and I think it's such a cool story because you did have to sort of really fight the fight. And I, I think I've, I've heard you talk about it before that, you know, you didn't just sort of land and have clinic and have your office and whatever, which of course, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's terrific. But for a lot of us, that's not going to be reality. And I think for right. a lot of younger trainees, you know, they may have to, to do what you did and, you know, do the paras and thoras and, and whatever um, and, and sort of on the side work, you know, work through. And I, I don't know, I think maybe that's one reason that you seem to resonate so much with the, the medical school population, because you sort of you've been there, you've walked the walk and you're telling them what to expect, not, you know. Yeah, and it's a reality. I mean, the, uh, the current construct. Luckily, more and more programs are popping up with clinic, you know, the OBL space, the ASC space mm. really kind of blossomed since Bill Julian and Jerry Whiskey kind of spearheaded some of this process. And so yeah. I think that's helped have another outlet for people. So now we're seeing certainly more of our graduates kind of open up. We still have the conventional diagnostic pathways, which are still a big hurdle to getting dedicated clinic because really it's all about the list, right? And it's to convince right. them to put in the overhead and time commitment and everything. I and mean, it takes years, right? It takes three to five years to get a return on that investment, which they're not used to. So that's a challenge, you know, and certainly admitting privileges and all these are real problems that we still as a specialty face. To what extent did SIR play a role in supporting this change or leveraging this change for you? That's a really good question. So I fresh out, I really realized that there's some certain just major holes in training. And I realized like, hey, we got to do something different than the current training because the current training paradigm is really very technical for a year, mostly imaging based and really not about history and physical exam and mm -hmm. how to counsel a patient and, and comprehensive management or pharmacotherapy or microbiology or physiology. We really are like lacking all those things. We're dealing with ICU patients, et cetera, being comfortable with admitting patients, managing diabetes, hypertension. So I knew that we had to change that because I recognized my own weaknesses uh, coming out and realizing that's not good for patient care. Ultimately, I went to SIR, tried to get involved, and it was very difficult as a fresh grad. I was quite frustrated at the time. I'm like, should I leave this specialty? I met Barry Katz and I read his uh, article in JACR. I met him at the Lars meeting and I emailed him. I'm a fresh grad at the time. And he's the one who actually sent a few emails and mm. all these doors opened up out of nowhere. And he said, listen, this has been a constant struggle. Like if you can't find a home in clinical medicine in interventional, uh, you know, I understand why you would want to leave. So he even understood that feeling. So I thought that was pretty powerful, right? This is one of the For biggest sure. individuals in our specialty, the OG clinical interventionalist who mentored mm. me from afar. So that was, you know, we, we won't say how many years ago, but some, some number of years ago. So how is it, how would it be different now, you know, vis-a-vis -vis ACIR, or APDIR, or, mm -hmm. or, or whatever, you know, pathways you're doing. So uh, make believe young interventionalist calls you with a similar yeah. type of story. How would things be different now? 
Now we have these resources of clinical medical education about various disease disorders through the SR, mm. through the resident fellow student section. In fact, when we initiated that concept in 2009-10, it was all based on comprehensive clinical care and the outpatient clinics and recruiting students who are passionate about kind of seeing patients and following them as their primary ethos. So I think once we started changing that, and that was really based on kind of the talk I heard from Andreas Adam, Vidi Vanished, where he talked about the worries about where our specialty internationally and nationally was going, and that if we don't change our recruitment policies, meaning, hey, we got to recruit people who are primary role and responsibility is taking care of patients, and we got to train them differently. We can't spend countless hours learning about skeletal dysplasias and thegnomastic mm-hmm. and not pay attention to diabetes, hypertension, wound care, and kind of basics of IC medicine. So these were things that I took to heart as we built the resident fellow student section. And I saw the interest at the SIR meeting when we were giving the resident training scholarship talks, how many residents were passionate about it. And so we expanded that radically over the last you know, 10, 15 years. And so that's been instrumental. So now there's a family of residents and students mm. who all are like-minded, who her primary role and responsibility is, hey, let's not just focus on procedures, but let's take care of people. Right. Take care of people like family, own the disease. So in HEC, it's not just case Y90, drug-eluting B, bland embo. Mm-hmm. It's really like transplant criteria, Milan, Yao, UCSR criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, meld NA and then the resection criteria, ablation versus resection trial data, you know, transarterial therapies, and then even systemic first, second line, whether it be Embrave 150 with T so and really knowing these well in the Sharp and Asia Pacific trials. So now they have level one evidence to support them, but not just in the interventional limb, but the medical limb, the surgical yeah. limb, transplant yeah. limb, et cetera. And so I think that has now become a construct that if you hear any of the talks that are given through the RFS, we're focusing on. So it becomes a commonality of conversation amongst trainees now that we didn't have when I was a resident. Yeah, that's terrific. I mean, is it fair to say that the IRDR discussion and, you know, in the IR residency now is, is sort of a result of that or, you know, seeing the, that sort of that different pathway? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of growing pain still as uh, more and more programs transition to this mm-hmm. fully. And it takes time, right? It takes took me a lot of years to start to develop clinical um, shops, so to speak. Right. I'm still working on it very hard. Every con- mm. inpatient consult is a little bit different, and I add a little bit of, to my repertoire. Clinic. My exam skills get a little bit better. So all that takes time. But at least what I can do now that I've accrued that knowledge is pass it down to my students and residents at our, my facility and elsewhere. And so it's going to take time. But for sure, integrated residency is now a pathway for students who know they want to do interventional and, you know, basically they're gung-ho about it. They want to do 100% interventional, many of them, um, and not like kind of the light IR that we've historically heard of. And those people are starting to come up with pipelines. The challenges that we're all going to face, you're going to talk about in your future meetings with like, you know, exclusive contracts and privilegings and and what the current landscape of market is like is mostly DR jobs with light IR, et cetera. So where is that fit going to be when they graduate? And that's something we all have to work with the early career section and SIR and the Associate and Chiefs of Interventional Radiology will have Mm -hmm. to figure some of these things out as time goes on. Yeah, good point. And it, it seems like it wasn't that long ago that we were still having a discussion about uh, IR versus IRDR. And now we're, you know, we're going to be working with folks who have, have done that residency. So where else is IR going? If I can ask you that yeah, impossible it's... to answer question, like, are there going to be IO fellowships or residencies? I mean, how subspecialized are we going to get, do you think? Yeah, and that's a million dollar question. You know, it's just funny. We were just watching the Churchill 2016 daughter lecture where he really, mm. at the end, kind of talks about subspecialization and kind of are we hedgehogs or, yeah. and so a competition. Talk. It's a great talk. So I was listening with my students and, you know, he brings up that concept, right? And I do agree there's some degree of that subspecialization uh, occurring even at our facility now that we have nine people. You know, mm. I do more of the PD aorta and 
kind of the IO and, but also, you know, men's, women's health. And, you know, I've kind of varied interests, but I don't do uh, the spine interventions or back pain or musculoskeletal stuff or the vascular malformations or certain things I'm not doing, but my colleagues are. So I do think there will be at least to have service line champions or leads, you know, depending on how big your division is. And as you expand and grow your service lines, you may need to hire more people to cover all that. Um, will there be subspecialty training? I think so. I mean, I think to some mm-hmm. extent we see that with PEDS interventional, uh, with mm. neurointerventional. Okay. Um, the Rush has that advanced endovascular fellowship. So that's with um, Kumar Matisseri and uh, Arsene Boulant running that at mm-hmm. Rush. So yeah. we're doing more of the complex PAD and aortic work. And certainly IO, you know, most places are doing to some extent, but certain places do a lot of the kind of the research and we'll have you rotate in Radonc and Medonc and really understand it at a deeper level. So that already kind of exists now. And then MSK, right? I think MSK is blowing up and people yeah. like Doug Beal and are, are doing some amazing stuff. And, uh, you know, the list is long, Yevich and Gore and Ladich, and a lot of people are doing some pretty exciting stuff and Alan Sog in that arena. And so that's going to be an exciting place of MSK pain and palliative care as a subdivision of a service line. So I do think you've got to build all the service lines and expand it. And I don't personally love going too down the roots of one subspecialty because mm. then you lose the forest from the trees. And yeah. I think ultimately the more holistic you can be, the better off the patient will be, in my opinion. So if you just come in for one problem, you should be able to assess the other problem. So it's kind of nice being able to do IO and CLI and, you know, some of the stuff I saw a patient today who we saw for a GI blade in the hospital, but she had like a non-STEMI, she was in DAP therapy mm. because she had a PCI. And we did the Andrew, she had an estimated disease. We didn't want to revask her. We just put her on the PPI and she's now two, three month follow-up. Now she has a fifth digit, like ischemic fissure at the plantar aspirator foot and a fifth digit wound. Mm. So I'm actually just saw her for the intestinal issues, no more bleeding. But now I'm seeing her for something else. And so I've set up a podiatry referral and I'm some mm. non-invasives on her and figure it out. But so that normally wouldn't occur if you're too one-minded. So I think you right. need to know all the clinically and you should have service line champions and then be able to offer the various therapies to provide, you know, what I think is the best care for the patient. With a growing Medicare population and age over 65, vascular disease, atherosclerosis is not going to be unheard of. Diabetes is going to continue to grow. So hypertension, hyperlipidemia are all things that any healthcare provider, any physician should have some understanding of wherever, whatever field you are when you're forward-facing with patients. Then, you know, basic screening of cancers and common cancers, we should all, I think, have some idea of. And then common ailments, whether it be obstructive uropathy and lower tract syndrome, osteoporosis and associated issues, back pain, knee pain. Um, these are common things that patients are going to suffer from and we can help them with. And I think that those are things that we need to learn as an international specialty to kind of provide that care. And DVD, PE, and not just the IVC filter management and right. blood clot removal, but really anticoagulation regimens, how to prevent it, who's going to provoke, unprovoked, yeah. duration of anticoagulation, role of DOAC versus uh, low molecular weight heparin versus heparinoids versus you know warfarin, et cetera. These are all things that we need to know in the trials behind it. So we have to use more and more evidence to support our decision-making, looking at safety, efficacy, and durability of our therapies and other pharmacologic therapies and supportive therapies. For sure. And I mean, everything that you've touched on, I mean, you're just, you know, just the DVT discussion, you know, for one example, I mean, shows how collaborative medicine has become. I mean, it used to be, oh, you know, the patient has a factor five Leiden. Okay, send them to, you know, hematology and, you know, that'll be, we put the filter in, send them to hematology and we'll never see them again. And what you're pointing out is that, hey, you've actually got to be a doctor. I mean, yeah. you've got to actually, Amen. yeah, sort of do everything that you were taught in medical school. Or it's, it's really interesting to see that change from being just sort of uh, technicians, as I, I think you've said before, to 
you know, actually being, you know, providers, you know, we're providers of care. Yeah, to be clinicians. Yeah, absolutely. Now we're being clinician physicians managing disease comprehensively. It's an inpatient console for filter patient has subdurals. Now we can add a lot more, you know, mm-hmm. some chronic or acute subacute or subdurals. And we're like, hey, she was on a DOAC and that may be the cause of bleed, but maybe yep. we use, you know, it hasn't had a clot in, since 2013 or 18. Maybe we can reduce the VTE rate and still reduce bleeding rate by a couple of maneuvers. And so this is the console we got yesterday. And we're like, well, once you resolve this, maybe instead of putting filter, we put her on the Amplify Extender Einstein Choice, which is a low dose DOAC protocol, where your reduction of VT is down to 1% with no higher bleeding than aspirin and two large randomized trials. So these are things that we can add a lot of clinical value from a console by doing a formal consult as an owner of disease processes as opposed to a proceduralist like filter, no filter. And it's a right. could we decision, not a should we decision. So I think no, the should we decision is the hardest thing that I do. And you have to live by it. The patient bleeds or has an event, it's your decision. Patient has a thought, it's your decision. Patient has a problem with the filter, it's your decision. Yeah, that's right. And it's it's funny because I I was a little bit like you. I I was looking at surgery myself in third year medical school and not cardiothoracic surgery necessarily. And, And I remember one of my chief residents in medicine told me, you know, surgery is easy because it's either do I operate or not? And then he said, the answer to that question is a really tough answer. And I think it's similar in what you're saying with IR. Yep. Do you put the filter in or not? Do you do you stent it or not? It's yes, it is a yes or no question. But what goes into that, the, the sort of clinical milieu that you're talking about that goes into it to inform that decision, I think is just so critically important. And now it's being recognized by IR. Yeah. So Yeah, and I think we historically haven't focused on on level one evidence or evidence-based medicine, but now as we have more and more physicians like Murphy and the Clever trial and coral trial like in renal atherosclerotic lesions or already iliac disease and clodicants and the mm. vascularization versus optimized medical therapy. The track trial by Vedanta was a big move in this field of DVT management. And now with Akisista doing P-Tract and, you know, Pythos coming up the, you know, the pipeline and C-Tract, all these things are going to give us a lot of data so we can counsel patients with a scientific approach with level one evidence, taking our biases as a specialty out. So that's exciting. I knew this was going to happen. I mean, there's about 500 more things, but I think we're, we're running out of time. So I'm going to ask what we ask all of our guests. If you weren't an interventional radiologist, what would you be doing and, and why? The beauty of our field is that you can pivot a little bit. Mm. So a lot of people say, oh, I can pivot to DR, but that's not what I'm thinking. I could pivot to MSK interventions and pain, which is mm-hmm. exceedingly challenging. The, the pain generators I find super complicated in the discussion. So maybe that's something I want to do down the line. You know, um, I, I think mm. so. But if I were to do something else, I think I would probably do uh, interventional cards with the structural component. You know, some of the stuff they're doing with mitroclips and transvalvular uh, work on the tricuspid uh, uh-huh. valve melodies and the pulmonary circulation, um, the, obviously the TAVRs and SAVRs, ASD, yep. PFOs, uh, PDAs, all these are pretty exciting. A lot of physiology, a lot of kind of uh, exciting structural things. So it kind of goes back to kind of when I was really interested in the cardiac surgery field. It, it probably replicates some of that. Yeah, that's great. Good stuff. And wow, what a great talk here. I really appreciate it. And like I said, I've got about a million more questions. So hopefully we'll be able to get you back real soon. And really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. No, it was fun. Thanks for inviting me. That was Dr. Joji Vatican-Cherry sharing his views on the future of interventional radiology. We thank Drs. Vatican-Cherry and Krakow for their time and you for listening to The King's Wire. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, drop us a line at kinkwire at surweb.org.